Hi, everyone. Just so you know, all those things Suzanne just talked about, I'm doing all of them. I'm going to be at the retreat. I'm going to vote for Jan Stanish. I'm going to go to the men's dinner. There was something else she said. I'm doing that too. I forget what. Beercraft. I'm going to go to Beercraft. How can I forget that one? We need to sell some tickets, folks. You got to see uh, Justin uh, get your tickets for Beercraft. Justin, raise your hand. Someone just said, who's Justin? Right here. All right. It's Lent. It's Lent. Third Sunday of Lent. Uh, I got some exciting things to share with you about, particularly regarding Holy Week. Um, so last week, I went to this uh, pastor's gathering, Marin pastor's gathering. A bunch of pastors in Marin got together, and uh, we just shared life together and prayed together. And uh, uh, one a couple of pastors um, were talking about doing a Monday Thursday service. Uh, you familiar with Monday Thursday? It's the day before Good Friday. It uh, typically comes out of uh, John 13, where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. So foot washing takes place. Anyhow, uh, Rod Miles and uh, Father Christopher Martin of St. Paul's Episcopal Church, uh, and Rod Miles pastors Grace Church of Marin, and us. Three churches are going to do a Monday Thursday service at St. Paul's. If you've never been in St. Paul's, it's gorgeous. Uh, and so uh, they have invited us into this opportunity. There's going to be a dinner at 6 p.m. and a service at 7.30 p.m. at St. Paul's. So um, I don't think there's any RSVP required. You can just show up and come and experience Monday Thursday. And then uh, the next night, we'll have a Good Friday service right here. Uh, I was meeting with some folks uh, last week, our creative team, and talking about Good Friday and batting around ideas, and I'm super excited about Good Friday this year. Uh, it's going to be really creative and really exciting, so I hope you can join us. And then, um, is there something else a couple of days later we should do? We should do Easter, don't you think? I think we celebrate resurrection. Uh, so Easter service, 10 a.m., there will be a potluck, Easter egg hunt, Easter picks after the service, and uh, we'll give you a whole lot de uh, more details on that next week and sign-ups for different volunteer opportunities uh, where we could use your help. So if you'd turn to Matthew 8, we're going to dive into our Lenten series here as we're going through Matthew 8 and 9, and I'm going to pray. God, thank you. Thank you for another Sunday where we get to gather together as your church, your people, and worship you. God, thank you that we can sing songs praising you as our creator and our redeemer. Thank you that we now have the opportunity to open the scriptures and look at another gospel story of our Lord Jesus. Inspire us by your spirit, Lord. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, we're in Matthew 8. And we're going to start in verse 14. So we've looked at two stories so far in Matthew 8. A, a man with leprosy came to Jesus and asked him to heal him. And Jesus touches him. Uh, this man with leprosy was uh, required to live on the outside. Jesus is always... Uh, 
healing and ministering to and going to those that are on the outside uh, of uh, the cultural boundaries, if you will, and he touches this man with leprosy. Then uh, from the bottom of the heap to the top of the heap, a Roman centurion comes to Jesus and asks Jesus to heal his servant. So Jesus engages with the enemy, if you will, a Roman centurion and heals his servant. And now uh, we have another story. It says, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. Now, I want to remind us of uh, where we are here. So we're in Capernaum. So this is a map of Israel. You can see the lake at the top is the Lake of Galilee. Jordan River goes all the way down to the Dead Sea, uh, lowest point on planet Earth. Dead Sea sits at 2,000 feet below sea level. Uh, at the very top of the Sea of Galilee is Bethsaida, and then just to the left you see Capernaum. So that's where Capernaum is, that's where Jesus is. Uh, this is the area where Jesus spent most of his ministry, was in the Galilee region. And then uh, this is an aerial photo of the excavations of Capernaum. So this is a modern day photo of what excavations look like. So they excavated this site, thousands of years old, this site. And uh, you can see a structure there that looks like a dome. That structure is not thousands of years old. That structure was built recently. Uh, and they built it over the top of an old Byzantine church, one of the very first Christian churches ever known of. And as they kept excavating, they, they realized that this church was eventually had been, uh, uh, expanded and was built on the top of a house. And so you can see down through this glass flooring of this building, a uh, first century house. And uh, many scholars believe that this was Peter's house in Capernaum. Don't know for sure, but many believe it was because the church was built there. And uh, Peter being one of the first disciples, one of the first apostles, it's believed that this church was built on the site where Peter's house was. So uh, this is the type of uh, building Jesus is walking into as he's in Capernaum. And he sees Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she be got up and began to wait on him. Now this uh, healing miracle of Jesus is, is different than any other in Matthew because this is the only uh, healing miracle in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus initiates the healing. Every, every other healing Jesus does, it's people come to Jesus for healing, but here Jesus walks into this home, into Peter's home, and he sees his mother-in-law lying there ill, and he heals her. Uh, it's also interesting to note, I think, that she doesn't say anything, and Jesus doesn't say anything. He simply sees the need and touches her hand, and she's healed. Uh, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the amazing healing power of touch, that when someone gives you a hug, when someone reaches out and touches you, there's something powerful about human contact, about human touch and here jesus simply touches her hand doesn't say anything just touches her hand and she's healed and then she gets up and it says began 
to wait on her on, on him uh, the Greek word for wait there is, is literally the word serve so she begins to serve him now uh, lest we uh, get confused and think oh the proper place of the woman is to serve the man let us not remember what we've been studying in Philippians what did Jesus come to do to serve Jesus is the model servant Jesus comes to serve. God himself is a servant. The word uh, serve in the Old Testament is used more of God than of any human being. God serves his creation. God serves his human creatures. God is a servant who came in the flesh to serve. And he served us most fully out of sacrificial, self-giving love. On the cross what does Jesus do when he walks into the house of Peter he sees Peter's mother-in-law sick what does he do he doesn't only heal her he serves her he sees a need and he serves her by healing her and out of her great gratitude to him she serves him back when Jesus touches us when Jesus wakes us up to his presence in our lives when Jesus heals us the appropriate response of gratitude is to serve Jesus back to give of ourselves to Jesus to give of ourselves to others to give of ourselves in the way God created us to serve and embody the true servant who is Jesus now the words she got up are literally in the Greek the words for resurrection it's the same word used later in Matthew of Jesus he is risen and so it's like a mini resurrection has taken place here in the home of Peter. Peter's mother-in-law has gone from deep sickness to health. She is now well and is thriving and serving Jesus who has just served her. Verse 16, when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. And so uh, the word's getting out about Jesus and people from all over are coming to him and, and uh, he's healing them and touching them and they're experiencing the healing presence of Jesus. And uh, Matthew quotes this text from Isaiah 53. If you read through Isaiah 53, it's, uh, it's become known as this text called the, uh, about the suffering servant, the one who would come and would suffer and die and serve the world by dying on the cross. And so Matthew's pointing out that what, what we see happening physically for people now ultimately Jesus will take that on the cross so that we can all experience our own mini resurrections and ultimately the resurrection to new life and eternity with Christ now part of the danger in uh, studying these healing miracles is that we may begin to think that oh to follow Jesus means what's in it for me How's Jesus going to heal me? What's he going to do for me? How am I going to get healed? How is this going to happen? And, and so it's almost like Matthew 
interrupts these healing miracles of Jesus and says, let's just talk about for a moment what it means to follow Jesus. Verse 18, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, in the first century, if you wanted to follow a rabbi, there, there, it depended on who the rabbi was, but there was a whole process you would go through uh, uh, that the rabbi would go through with you to determine if you could be his follower, if you could be his disciple. Uh, Jesus is unique in that he doesn't go through that typical process. He simply sees people who probably didn't get chosen by other rabbis who are out fishing and says, hey, you, you didn't get chosen by a rabbi? Hey, come on, follow me. You, follow me. Uh, this guy, though, is a teacher of the law, a scribe. He knows how to read and write. He knows how to teach the law. And here he comes to Jesus wanting to follow Jesus. So he clearly has been a disciple of a rabbi. Uh, some people surmise that perhaps this guy just wants to follow whoever the popular rabbi is of the time. And we know what happens with Jesus, right? Super popular at the beginning of his ministry, not so popular by the end of his ministry. Uh, and so this is a time in Jesus's ministry. He's super popular. He's healing people. Crowds are following him. And so along comes this guy who's already been a disciple of a different rabbi. And he says, hey, can I jump in on this thing that's going on? Can I, can I be your disciple? And Jesus's response is just so interesting. He, he says, foxes have dens and birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And that's all he says to him. <laughs> I wonder, you know, in the first century, if you're, if you're a rabbi, uh, and especially if you're a rabbi in Jerusalem, and a part of the Sanhedrin, and, and one of the priests, uh, your life is pretty good in terms of financial means. Uh, you are wealthy, you have a nice home, you're taken care of. Uh, if you're a rabbi in one of the towns, like in Galilee, you, you have your own synagogue, you have your place to live. Uh, Jesus is an itinerant rabbi. He just travels around. He's homeless. He says to this guy, listen, you, you want to follow me? I don't have a home. Uh, I wonder if Jesus walked into Peter's house and saw Peter's mother-in-law lying ill because he was staying with Peter at the time. Jesus doesn't have a house. So he's finding a corner in Peter's house and sleeping there. Uh, so he says to this guy who's eager to follow this popular rabbi, he says, listen, you want to follow me, you better think long and hard about what it means to follow me because we're going to be sleeping outside. We're going to be sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to just rely on the generosity and hospitality of others because I don't got a house for you to stay with me in. So think about it. Uh, we don't know what happened with this guy. It's interesting to me that he comes and calls Jesus rabbi and doesn't call him Lord, because the next guy we'll look at calls him Lord. Uh, the Roman centurion had just called Jesus Lord. 
But this guy says, teacher, perhaps he just thinks Jesus is the next new thing, but not truly the Son of God, not truly the Messiah. Uh, we don't know. We don't know. The next guy is actually referred to as a disciple. He says, another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And then we have another bizarre response from Jesus. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. I, does that sound harsh to you? Uh, is Jesus being a little harsh here, I wonder? Um, think about your morning routine for a moment. What, what's your morning routine like? Uh, for some of you, uh, you get up and you do what? Read the newspaper? Scroll through the news? What's that? Get my kids up. Get your kids up. Okay, for others of us, the kid comes into the bed at 5 a.m. Uh, and gets you up. Uh, for some, it's uh, you spend some time alone, some quiet time. For some, it's uh, you make a cup of coffee. I'm a two cup of coffee guy. One in the morning, one in the afternoon. One of the things I gave up for Lent, my morning cup of coffee. But you know, it's just spectacular because every morning when I think about, oh, I sure would like a cup of coffee this morning. And trust me, I can find God in a cup of coffee. Like the taste, the flavor profiles, as, as the temperature changes, the new flavors that come out, I'm like, oh God, holy God of the universe, you created the bean that somebody roasted that I grinded that made this cup of coffee. So I, I can find God in a cup of coffee. But when I'm not having that cup of coffee, it's reminding me every morning, oh, I, I want to drink deeply of God. I, I want to drink deeply of the creator, God of the universe. God's way better than a cup of coffee, even though I can find God in a cup of coffee. Uh, what's your morning routine like? Then let me ask you this. What would it take to disrupt your morning routine? I think for most of us, it, it would take probably something really important. An emergency, a uh, phone call that something's happened to a loved one, uh, maybe even the death of a loved one. Uh, for Jews, the first thing you do in the morning is recite the Shema. Shema is a Hebrew word for hear. It comes out of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Uh, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ahad. This is what you do every morning. First thing, as a Jew, you recite the Shema. This was the most important thing you could do, unless a close family member has died. This man says to Jesus, let me bury my father first. We don't know if his father has just died or if his father is ailing and he wants to stay with his father until his father dies and then follow Jesus. Uh, but what the 
Mishnah says is he who's dead lies unburied before him is exempt from reciting the Shema. Uh, what becomes more important for the Jew now is to bury the loved one. The Talmud goes even further and says he who is confronted by a dead relative is freed from reciting the Shema and from all the commandments stated in the Torah. Uh, that's pretty huge. That's how important burying a loved one is to the Jewish people. The process would be you bury the loved one the same day, then there's a six-day mourning period, and then a year later you remove the bones from the tomb and put them in an ossuary uh, where they remain as their final resting place until the resurrection. Uh, and so this man is saying, I, I want to bury my father before I follow you. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. So is Jesus being harsh here? It's clear that Jesus cares greatly about family. He calls out the religious elite on not uh, honoring their father and mother at one point. He uh, is very clear about that. And so it's interesting Jesus' response. But I think what Jesus is doing is he's trying to help this disciple see, and he's trying to help us see, that if there is something that has taken priority over following Jesus, you need to let it go. Uh, what has taken priority over the journey and process of following Jesus? Um, I'm struck by this quote. Too often as contemporary Christians, we find our discipleship compromised by our goal-oriented personalities. Anyone who has gone on a long car trip with a child has heard the question, are we there yet? Impatience causes joy to wither. We come to value outcomes and results so much that we undervalue the process, the journey. So either we fail to appreciate the tasks and gifts that come with discipleship, or we live with a kind of idolatrous devotion to delayed gratification. When I get older, or when I get richer, or when I get married, or when I retire, then at last my life will be set right. Uh, it's this sense that uh, what's best is always coming rather than enjoying the moment, enjoying the process of discipleship. But what, what gets in the way of your discipleship? Uh, has school become more important than the discipleship process? Has uh, uh, your job become more important than the discipleship process? Is there a sense of, well, when my kids get older, when they get out of the house, then I can engage the discipleship process. Here's the thing. Your kids are watching you now. If you're not engaging the discipleship process, they're not going to engage it. Uh, the invitation from Jesus is to follow him now. And whatever may take priority over that, Jesus says, you've got to let it go. Uh, Bonhoeffer said it this way. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Uh, Bonhoeffer did die. Uh, for Bonhoeffer, following Jesus was no joke. It, it, 
you're either all in or you're not in. Uh, what has taken priority in your life over the discipleship process that Jesus invites us into each and every day? Uh, here's the thing. The things that we let take priority over the discipleship process often cause us so much stress. Our jobs, our kids' activities, this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing, uh, they, they just create so much stress in our lives and don't create committed followers of Jesus. Uh, when Jesus talked about this kind of stuff, his words were, do not worry. Don't allow yourself to lead an anxious life. Instead, invest in the free and light way that Jesus invites us to live. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. If we're always thinking about the next thing, uh, what's the next thing I got to do? What's the next thing my kids got to do? Uh, what school do I need to get my kid in so that my kid can get in the best possible college? Uh, listen, if your kid doesn't get in the best possible college, I think they're going to be okay. I think they're going to be okay. Uh, if you're living a life following Jesus and loving them well, are they going to rebel? Yeah, maybe. Maybe they're going to rebel. Maybe they're going to go their own way. Maybe they're going to go do their own thing. That'll be their choices. If they don't get in the best school, if they don't get in the best college, they're going to be okay if they know you love them. If they know you love them, it's going to be okay. Seek first the kingdom, and, and it's going to be okay. All these things will take care of them. So don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about the college. Don't worry about the job. Don't worry about retirement. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. The number one command in all of Scripture, fear not. And we, we just consume ourselves with it, don't we? Uh, I think Jesus is simply saying to this man, when he says, let the dead bury their own dead, he's saying, don't worry. It'll take care of itself. Follow me now. Come with me now. And let me show you the best possible way to live. These uh, opening stories of Jesus show us a, a Jesus who cares greatly for those on the outside. Ultimately, cares greatly for our hearts. Uh, and the invitation constantly coming from Jesus to walk with him. Um, I was thinking this, it is against the agents of death that Jesus begins his ministry, caring for the outcast, the ill, the oppressed, 
to the point of offering his own body. This is what we remember in our participation in the bread and the cup. From death, he is risen and offers himself to us as the bread of life and the cup of salvation. Uh, when Jesus' disciples asked him, how do we pray? He said, pray like this. Will, will you join me in praying this? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Then let's say this together. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. Amen. God, thank you. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for these stories. Uh, God, we, we long to follow you. God, come to us in your mercy and grace and help us release the things that we all too often stress out about, that we grow anxious about, that we allow to take priority over following you. Because everything belongs, it all belongs, it's all important to you. Uh, God, just help us align those things within your kingdom framework, trusting you, discerning by your spirit what you're calling us to. God, as we take this bread and dip it in the cup, we remember, we remember your body broken and your blood poured out for us. And we give you thanks. In the name of Jesus, everyone said, amen. amen.